If you have your Bibles, don't go to Exodus. Go to Mark. We're in Mark chapter 8. Back in the Christian Standard Bible here. So if you want to follow along in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you, that's on page number 894. If you don't have a Bible, or if the Bible translation you read is difficult to understand, uh, we commend these Bibles in the pew rack to you. And if you don't have one, you are welcome to take the one in the pew rack in front of you and consider it as our gift to you. So if you found Mark chapter 8, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? And we'll be reading verses 1 through 21. Mark chapter 8, beginning verse 1. In those days there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, Where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them. And he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. You may be seated. It is in the spirit of the last several verses that I entitled today's message, Tough Questions for Christ's Followers. 
As I read it, I count eight questions, one of which is a compound question, kind of a twofer. Jesus is just bombarding the disciples with these tough questions at the end of this passage we read. In a similar way, today's questions are tough. And the main reason they're tough is because I'm basically asking the question of followers of Jesus, how much are we like him? That's a tough question for everyone. The reason why is because, well, Jesus is perfect. You say, well, then you're just expecting too much, Pastor Jason. Let me give you exhibit A. Matthew 5, 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Exhibit B. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And exhibit C. Therefore, since we are Such a large crowd of witnesses surround us. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Here's the key. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the author, and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So... Being conformed into Christ's likeness is what Christians are called to do. And this gospel, Mark's gospel, we learned at the outset of our study, if you weren't here when we began in January, is a great gospel to go and see Jesus, to see portraits of Jesus, holiness, victory, The word redemption has a name, and it's Jesus. If we want to see Jesus, we can go and look at Mark's gospel. So we're going to look at Christ today, and then we'll look at ourselves, and prayerfully, we will be conformed a little more into his image when we leave this place. So with all that in mind, let's go back over this section of Mark's gospel and face up to these tough questions that the text asks of us. First, do we care like Christ for the physical and spiritual needs of those around us? Do we care like Christ for the physical and spiritual needs of those around us? The first nine verses of Mark 8 recount a story that almost feels like you've heard it before. For those who weren't here in the spring or haven't read Mark's gospel before, just a couple chapters ago, Jesus prepares a feast for 5,000, not including women and children. And the accounts are very similar between that and this one. But there are some clearly differing details, 5,000 versus 4,000, 12 baskets left over versus 7. But the similarities are very strong. And the main point, I believe, is similar to what the main point of chapter 6 was. And when we studied that passage, we said this, Jesus is a compassionate, good shepherd who provides for the lost sheep of Israel. 
So today, instead of repeating similar points of the message from this spring, I'd invite you to just go back and listen to that passage, if you would. I want to jump to an application question that we can all take from this passage, and that is, are we, like Christ, compassionate for the lost, willing to provide for the physical and spiritual needs of those around us? We are called as believers to be ready to do good to all people and not only those in the household of faith. The Bible says, especially to those in the household of faith, but never to the exclusion of others. Scripture says we are to love even our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Christians are called to Christ-like compassion that would care even for our enemies and especially for their souls. So look with me to verse 8 and be reminded that Christ can satisfy all that he feeds. Verse 8 of Mark 8, they ate and were satisfied. And not only were they satisfied, they had leftovers. J.C. Ryle says, we must never allow ourselves to doubt Christ's power to supply the spiritual needs of all his people. I was thinking about this when we sang, uh, our God is greater and stronger. And the first line, if you believe it, if we sing in the spirit and sing with understanding, it makes the rest of the song so easy. Water you turned into wine. Second line, open the eyes of the blind. Like, do we believe that? And if so, are we reminded of his power? supernatural power to transform and change. Our God is greater. So he is able to supply. He has bread enough, Ryle says, and enough to spare for every soul who trusts in him. Weak, infirmed, corrupt, empty as believers might feel themselves, let us never despair while Jesus lives, which Hebrews reminds us is always In him there is a boundless store of mercy and grace laid up for the use of all his believing members and ready to be bestowed on all who ask of it in prayer. In other words, what the disciples should have known by now was that these people were in need of compassionate care and they should have been asking, what can we do to help? The disciples uh, should have remembered Uh, what Jesus did. And although they were inadequate in themselves, they should have asked Christ this question. Can you help us meet their needs? And they should have remembered Jesus had proven himself already time and time again. And so they could have been asking, will you do it again? Christians, I'm afraid that we are too much like the disciples. We've seen the power of God in our own lives, seen him at work in the lives of others before, but we forget and we begin to doubt the supernatural, all-sufficient bread of life. He can feed the hungry soul. And if you will but lead your friends to Jesus, your compassion for them will be eclipsed by the all-compassionate Savior and every need of theirs will be met according to the abundant riches of his mercy and grace. Now, before we leave this first question and this first section of Mark chapter 8, 
Some have questioned the authenticity of this account because it's so similar to the account of the feeding of the 5,000. Maybe it's a duplicate or an error. Friends, this is not an error. I would argue far from it. First and foremost, Jesus didn't make mistakes. And he clearly asked the disciples in verses 19 and 20 about two different events in his own words. He says, don't you remember the 5,000? How many? Don't you remember the 4,000? How many leftovers? That's proof enough for me. Jesus' dialogue is enough for me to track with. This is two different occasions. But more than that, I want you to, to make you aware of something I believe was very intentional in Mark's writing of this gospel. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark chapter 8 begins a parallel cycle of events that Mark has placed here to show us something, namely how slow the disciples are to get it. This is proving something here. This table, uh, hopefully we have it, was something that I clipped out of a commentary. It's William Lane's commentary, but it's not a unique observance of just his. Other commentators note the same parallels. I'm not going to go spot by spot with this, but you can kind of observe while I explain. He writes, quote, By a skillful arrangement of the material, Mark indicates that it was necessary for the Lord to repeat the sequence of acts and teaching a second time before their significance began to dawn on the disciples. Their ears remained deaf to Jesus' teaching, their eyes blind to his glory. And in this respect, the incidents that conclude the cycles, the healing incidents, prefigure what is to take place in the lives of the disciples. The opening of the ears of the one who is deaf. The opening of the eyes of the one who is blind. All of which was a prelude to the confession of the messianic dignity of Jesus. Did they see him? Did they really see him? So not only is the account real, but where Mark places it in sequence is designed to teach us something about the gradual clarity with which the disciples were seeing and understanding who Christ Jesus really is. Brother Alex next week will be speaking about this, so I'll leave that to him and move on to my second question for tough believers. The scene changes. Christ leaves the area of the Decapolis and he heads to Dalmanutha, which is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there Jesus is met with some poorly motivated, sign-seeking Pharisees. See in verse 11 that the sign they were asking for, demanding, was in order to test him. The Pharisees request was not undergirded with a sincere desire to be truly convinced, but it was another opportunity for them to excuse, refusing to respond to the clear evidence already available to them in Jesus' teaching and ministry. It's ironic, right? Because Jesus had done a number of miraculous signs already right before their eyes. But what I want to hone in on here this morning and our questions, tough ones for us, is what Jesus does in verse 12. Look at Mark 8 and verse 12, and we read, he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign 
will be given to this generation. Jesus sighed deeply. It was the sigh of a heart mourning the ruin that these wicked men were bringing on their own souls. J.C. Ryle says, Enemies as they were, Jesus could not behold them hardening themselves in unbelief without a sense of sorrow. So I ask, secondly, do we grieve like Christ for souls stuck in sin and unbelief? Do we grieve like Christ for souls stuck in sin and unbelief? Jesus sighing over the unbelief of his enemies, and so should we. Friends, St. Mary's County is largely lost. The people at the grocery store, sitting beside you at your kid's soccer game, working next to you at your office, or coming to fix your appliance, they are dead in their trespasses and sins, headed to an eternal destiny apart from God in a place called hell. And the things of this world power, money, position, have blinded them to the greater purposes of the kingdom of God. Are you grieved over their souls like Christ is and their unbelief? We should all be burdened in our souls for the souls of those who are far from God. But if Jesus grieved over sin and unbelief of the Pharisees, I'm arguing from the greater to the lesser here, how much more ought we to grieve over sin or signs of unbelief in our own congregation. Friends, at this family gathering Friday night, I shared with those present how absolutely critical it is for us as a church family to hold one another accountable and care for one another by caring for each other's souls. Are you seeing hypocrisy? a mere religious formalism, skepticism overtake a member of the church? Do you see a member of the church ensnared in a besetting sin? Is someone you know neglecting the Lord's Day or failing to keep their covenant to regularly participate in Sunday morning worship services? Does it make you want to sigh deep within your soul or are we indifferent? Grief over the sins of others is one of the leading evidences of true grace and, hear me, genuine love in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, says, Love does not delight in evil. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, another translation says. It rejoices in the truth. Christians ought never to be known as careless or indifferent to the state of someone's soul in the church, outside the church, makes no difference. Let's not forget that the same Jesus who grieved over the Pharisees and their unbelief is still the same today, and his heart is grieved by any form of sin and unbelief. Now, shifting gears now, because the text does that, we're told Jesus then left the Pharisees and went back to the other side. That's to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And here we have another account 
about bread. If you were following that table, it parallels the account of the Syrophoenician woman. Remember the crumbs and the bread and all those questions? Another talk of bread. Here we are told the disciples forgot to bring bread. And they only had one loaf with them in the boat. Now, some very fanciful interpretations of that verse, they would say that maybe this is a veiled reference to Jesus. In other words, they didn't bring any bread, and all they had was one loaf, the bread of life, with them. Of course, that's a fanciful thing. It's tempting to kind of overinterpret the passage. I'm not inclined to think that's what Mark's point was here, any more than I'm inclined to believe that the number of baskets collected in either case had a symbolic value to it. Mark tends to not use that kind of allegorical symbolism And there are few reasons in the context to see that kind of symbolic meaning. It would have been a jolt for Jesus to begin speaking about leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, which is the primary point of the story if they didn't have any bread in the boat. It was kind of on the nose, and that's part of the discussion. It's way more plausible to see that truly they had one loaf of bread for all of them, and the point is That's an inadequate amount for the number of disciples. Just like the five were inadequate for the 5,000, and the seven were inadequate for the 4,000, the amount of bread was inadequate once more. And so Jesus warns them to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. I don't want to assume anything for you kids in the room and those who don't know, leaven refers to yeast that is added to bread and to dough, excuse me, to make it rise. One of my favorite episodes of I Love Lucy is where they're taking the bread uh, from, they have to making the bread from scratch, and she adds way too much yeast to the loaf, and she ends up with this giant loaf that she's kind of moving around, and then at the end of the episode, the loaf kind of overtakes the kitchen when it comes out of the oven. Uh, it's, It's cute and it's funny, but the point about leaven is this. A little bit goes a long way. And a small amount can radically alter anything into which it is mixed. In the New Testament, almost every time leaven is mentioned, far from the comedy hour of I Love Lucy, the context about leaven is typically negative. It's seen as an influence that corrupts and destroys. Leaven is associated with pride. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, your boasting is not good. Your pride is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven is associated with malice and wickedness. A couple verses later, let's therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, that is the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And leaven is associated with false teaching in Paul's letter to the church of Galatia. He says in verse 9, chapter 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So what Jesus is saying is watch out for false doctrine. Watch out for hypocrisy. Watch out for unbelief. He doesn't just mention the Pharisees. He throws in Herod too. That's because Herod, like the Pharisees, was seeking a sign. Luke 23 and 8 tells us when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Let's be reminded 
these opponents of Jesus were not just opponents in an ideological sense. These folks were literally the ones who would conspire to kill him. Brothers and sisters, there are ideologies, false doctrines, and attitudes that may seem small, innocuous, insignificant, but they are enemies of Christ and his church. And what may start out as seeming innocent could destroy the faith of you and others around you. So I ask thirdly, do we warn like Christ of the danger of false doctrine? Do we warn like Christ of the danger of false doctrine? Paul told Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. First, uh, in chapter 1 of Titus, the elders are charged with the task of teaching sound doctrine and rebuking those who contradict it. And that's not just an elder thing. The church is ultimately responsible for the preservation of the gospel. Paul says to the church in Galatia, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. This is why, brothers and sisters, you should pray for the preaching ministry of this pulpit, for me, for others. Why even elders are accountable to you, the congregation. We are all called to warn against false doctrine and the leaven of unbelief anywhere it appears in our congregation. Watchtower magazines, secret societies, Mormon doublespeak, spurious ideas of what makes a church. We must look after one another and lovingly warn of the dangers. But when we do, we may find that those whom we are warning are just a little slow to pick up what we're putting down. A little slow to pick up what we're putting down. The disciples were that way. Jesus is giving a serious warning And they're talking about a lack of bread. Their discussion is about how much bread they have to eat. I think it is often easier to look down on the disciples. They should have known better. Than it is to learn a lesson in humility from them. Who do we think we are? Who do we think we are to think that we would have been any better than Peter, John, apostles from whom we have several New Testament books? They just didn't get it clearly. Converted as they were, I believe, they were still dull to understanding spiritual things. Their eyes were still dim. It's almost like their eyesight was only good enough to compare people walking around to looking like 
the form of trees. We'll get there in a couple weeks. Their spiritual eyesight lacked clarity, and they needed more help. So Jesus begins to ask tough questions. By the way, it's okay to ask brothers and sisters in Christ tough questions. It may be helpful for them to see something they're missing. Jesus asks, why are you talking about bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Don't you remember what happened at the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000? In verse 21, he says, do you not yet understand? As hard as those questions are, can you see the hope in that word yet? Can you see the hope in the word yet? The yet means Jesus knows they will understand, and he is going to help them get to that point. Jesus patiently continues to push them toward a greater clarity of spiritual vision beyond what men can see, and later in this chapter, beyond the earthly agenda of Peter to see what God is really up to and who Christ really is. So the fourth and final question for us today, are we patient like Christ with young or immature believers? Are we patient like Christ with young or immature believers? J.C. Ryle, again, in his expository thoughts on Mark's gospel, writes, quote, Above all, we will find it useful to remember what is recorded here in Mark 8 when we deal with young Christians. We must not expect perfection from a new convert. We must not set him down as graceless and godless or a false professor because at first he sees but half the truth and commits many mistakes. His heart may be right in the sight of God, and yet, like the disciples, he may be very slow of understanding in the things of the Spirit. We must bear with him patiently and not cast him aside. We must give him time to grow in grace and knowledge. End quote. It's a wonderful thought that Jesus, our master in heaven, despises none of his people. Marvelous and blameworthy as slowness to learn undoubtedly is, his patience never gives way. Jesus goes on teaching us line upon line, precept upon precept, and we should do likewise. Let it be a rule with us never to despise the weakness or the slowness of young Christians. Whenever we see a spark of grace, however dim and mixed with trouble it might be, let us be helpful and kind and do to others what we would have others do to us. Without a show of hands, how many of you can say, I came here to where I am today through many dangers, toils, and snares? That is true of most of us, almost all of us. Christ has been patient with us. Are we patient with young believers? Some of you who are in a life group, 
need to be reminded of this question. Some of you who work with teenagers and children need to be reminded of this question. Some who would think themselves mature but have grown impatient with the messiness of new Christians in the church need to be reminded of this question. Galatians chapter 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. And catch how? In a spirit of gentleness. And keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing... He deceives himself. You see, brothers and sisters, we are all too often prone to forget the miracles God has done in our own hearts, rescuing us from the depths of sin, transforming us, patiently bearing with our weaknesses and chipping away at our own pride. And just when you think you've arrived, Paul says, be careful when you stand, lest you fall. Don't forget that every believer, everyone, is being patiently transformed into Christ's likeness. And so in our own discipleship efforts, when we care for others, grieve their sin, and warn of the error of false doctrine, let us do it patiently and with the same hope-filled sense of yet that our master Jesus had. That brother you're discipling, they don't yet understand. That sister you're concerned about, she has yet to get it. But let's not be content to leave them where they are. Let us care for them by bringing them to the bread of life who can satisfy. Let's grieve for them when they go astray and restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And let's warn them when we see the dangers of false doctrine, hypocrisy, or skepticism invading their thinking. And insofar as we patiently go about this work, each one of us will be more like Jesus. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great love with which you loved us and that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive by faith through your grace. It's a gift. It's not our works. So we can't boast. But Lord, you've prepared us for good works. You've prepared us to walk in them. So I pray that you would find us faithful, being conformed into your image. And may one of the good works that we do be to restore, to care, to love, to guide, to be compassionate, and to grieve. Help us to become more like the Savior, in whose image and likeness we are being transformed. May this body look more and more like our head. May this church continue to be more and more Jesus-ruled. 
Help us, Lord. We thank you for the portraits of Christ in your word. We thank you for Mark's gospel and Mark's unique contribution under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminding us that even the disciples were slow, slow learners. But you had called them, you had set them apart, and you lovingly, patiently guided them into truth and then left your spirit to guide us in all truth. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who instructs our hearts through your word, illuminates it, convicts us of our sin, and pray your spirit would move among us and transform us into the likeness of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.